Welcome to the 22nd episode of Zero Hour Strikes, the show that covers DC's 1994 crossover event, Zero Hour Crisis in Time. Every issue, every tie-in, did all that. Every zero issue. I'm Siskoid. I'm Bass. And in this episode, we look at Legion-related zero issues, including Legion of Superheroes, Legionnaires, Rebels 94, which used to be Legion 94, and since he was a member of the latter... Lobo, Lobo number zero. Were you reading any of these series to begin with? None of them. None okay. of them. Never read Rebels. Don't really know about them. Lobo I did because, you know, I'm a 90s kid, so everybody knows Lobo. And Legion, well, I knew the old Legion from the 70s, so this is basically all new to me. And it's all old to me, or almost. <laughs> almost. <laughs> I wasn't reading Lobo, I admit. So, uh, undoubtedly, the most affected by Zero Hour, is the Legion of Superheroes, because it suffered its first true reboot and has since been rebooted and retrobooted and rebooted and, you know, several times to the <laughs> point where it's kind of one of their shticks now. But uh, you saw where the five years later era had left them, you know, when we did the tie-in. It was perhaps impossible to come back from that. And uh, I personally, I've revisited these issues more than... Than most, because Shotgun and I, Shotgun from Ohadmu or not, we covered the entire reboot era. It lasted 10 years. Oh my. 10 years of comics, often with multiple series going on at the Legion of Super Bloggers website. If you're into blogging and, and you want to see what uh, basically our shtick was, I've read them or I've read most of the run. Shotgun was coming to it fresh. The question was, does the reboot work for older fans who are seeing it all reinterpreted? And does it work as an introduction for new readers? And so we kind of tried to prove that either way on the blog. Very familiar material, <laughs> as far as I'm concerned. And we've talked about the Legion before, and, and you know, we've each read parts of it. And I think, I, I obviously, I'm the bigger Legion fan, or, you know, I've read more comics from him. You're probably one of the biggest Legion fans I know. Uh I'm not one of the biggest Legion fans I know because of the Legion of Super Bloggers. There are people there I feel are, you know, have much more of a handle on the history. Like I know the 60s stuff because I'm a fan of the Silver Age and that kind of craziness. Yeah. And then I, I'm not too clear on the 70s. And then I picked up in the 80s was when I started reading the Legion. And then it kind of never looked back because I, I read all of those and the uh, five years later, which I enjoyed, the reboot, which I enjoyed. Uh, and then the reboot kind of darkened, which I still enjoyed. And then they rebooted. I've not read the three boot. See, that's what I mean. Then the retro boot happened, and I read those because it was a continuation of what was happening in the eighties. And now they've rebooted them again. Um, <laughs> and uh, I, I, I've read like the first issue, and I dislike it very much. I, it's, it's, there's too much reinvention that you don't recognize any of the characters anymore. You, you can almost take reboot out of there and just. We'll just say that comics are being legionnaired. You know, it can, it can be the new reboot term for comics. They've been legioned. It's almost what it is at this point. So I, I do wish that they 
pick a lane and stick with it. But the reboot here may or, I mean, to, to me, was a good era, an interesting era, fun era. We'll get to it. So there are two books are actually dovetailing one into the other. Legion of Superheroes and Legionnaires are following one into the other. And, and these two series, it's basically like having a Legion book that is bi-weekly. Let's get into that first one and then we'll see what your thoughts are. You're coming to this fresh. Yeah. So Legion of Superheroes number zero by Mark Wade, Tom McCraw, Stuart Amonin, and Ron Boyd. It's called Time and Chance. In the late 30th century, three teenagers from different worlds, Garth Rands, Imra Ardeen, and Rock Crin, find themselves on a transport going to Earth with the galaxy's third richest man, R.J. Brand. At the spaceport, Brand is attacked by assassins, but the kids join forces and use their powers to stop them. Brand, who is supplying stargates to the United Planets, and in effect making the dream of a united galaxy possible, strikes upon an idea. These kids could become a symbol of unity and idealism, much like the Justice League of old. He pitches them this idea, and they accept. It's kind of our first chapter. So before we get into the story itself, let's talk about the cover by Stuart Amonin. What do you think of this cover starring the three Legion founders? Oh, I, I mean, it's it's okay. Uh, it, it's a lot of purplish hues. Kind of cold. You know, you know how colors are hot and cold and, you know, oranges and reds and yellows are hot and purples and blues and greens are, are yeah, are kind of cold or uh, this is a cold cover, which is fine. We see the three original Legionnaires and in the original suits and it's kind of cool, kind of cool. We see the flight rings and we see the powers and everything's there. So it's kind of like a pinup action pose. I think it's fine. It's it's not incredible, but it's fine. But it's kind of a preview because in the issue itself, they don't wear those uniforms. They never get the uniforms No. Uh, as of then. And the flight rings are still further into the future, I think. It's our chance to see them in proper attire which we won't do for until the next issue or until the Legionnaires issue. Essentially, this is the same origin story that they used to have where they save R.J. Brand mm -hmm. and that everybody comes upon the idea of, oh, we should stick together and, and become a team, which was always kind of boring <laughs> and, and kind of formed a legion of three, which isn't much of a legion mm -hmm. uh, as far as the, what the word means. But here, I think, for me, uh, being able to compare, I think the, the stakes are higher. It's the early United Planets, uh, so much more is on the line. R.J. Brand is more important in this mm -hmm. universe because of it. They're kind of like a boy band, like formed by, by an entity. <laughs> like a corporate, a corporate entity forms them. But they become a symbol. And what helps this symbol for me is that in this continuity, they decided that Titan, which is Saturn's moon, where Saturn Girl comes from, and mm -hmm. Brawl, who is... Uh, which is uh, Cosmic Boy's homeworld, had a recent war. So the United Planets are sort of forming kind of after World War II, we've got the United uh, Nations. They're kind of doing that. And because two of the members off the bat used to be at war, their worlds used to be at war, I think that symbol is more potent. Yeah. You know, normally they would have been at odds. So idealism, youth, the next generation is going to show us the way is kind of the thing here. What, what did you think of this origin story? I, I really enjoyed it because the original, you know, the, the, the first origin story is kind of boring. You know, we know nothing of these characters. We don't know who they are. They just, they're just kids with powers, you know, in the original. Here, you know, we have Cosmic Boy, who's 
basically a jock. He's a pro sports guy. Saturn Girl is like this rookie science police. And Garth is is like this bad boy. He's looking for his brother. And so we have a richer origin story. And I kind of dig it because they, they still have this thing where they use their powers and everybody's like, ooh, he has electric powers. And ooh, magnetism, that's cool. It's still kind of kitschy, but at least it's richer in, in story and we kind of get a bit of uh, character development, and, and that I enjoy a lot. I think they have a better reason to join a legion, you know, to be these th three kids who don't really know, well, they don't know each other. They're just on the same plane. Like, yeah. when was the last time you bonded with everybody on your plane and then never. wound up doing, like, making a, like a club out of it? <laughs> <laughs> never, never. Well, it happened once. Well, but, that, you yeah. Know, we never talked about it. No, but I mean, that was a special case. Now, people are sort of speculating. <laughs> so, <laughs> no, it never happened. I don't like people. Yeah, no, exactly. I, no. <laughs> Because here they've got, you know, this backstory from the beginning, but also there's an impetus to say yes to this when R.J. Brand pitches it. Lightning Lad is having trouble. Well, I, I call him Lightning Lad. He's going to be called Livewire in this continuity. Yeah. But Lightning Lad is having, he's trying to find Lightning Lord or, his, you know, his older brother who has the same electric powers and he's having trouble. You know what? Maybe I need some help. Maybe if I'm part of a team, I could eventually rope them into helping me find my brother. You know, that makes sense. Yes. Yeah. Saturn Girl is a science cop, so she's already about law enforcement. But being a telepath, you get the feeling that people don't really like telepaths. That they're creepy. People don't trust them. They have to wear the badge with the Saturn on it to identify themselves. That part I kind of enjoyed, and it was cringy at the same time. I mean, yeah. they have to wear this badge because they're telepaths. Right. It's not a Judge Dredd. You know, she's a psychop. And there are some rules to that. You know, you can't just be reading people's minds. There has to be, like, due process of some sort. Well, yes and no, because, <laughs> you know, when you see her use her powers and go, well, he's the, you know, she is reading minds. People around her are going, oh, don't read my mind. Because she's kind of a misfit, I think she's, she's more easily out of the service and going, screw this science cop thing. It's not working out. I don't feel comfortable. And then she goes over to, to the, the new team. And then you've got uh, Rock, who is, as in the original continuity, you know, he was a, uh, a sports star. Yeah. They play Magno Ball. But here they give him a, uh, right off the bat, his manager's kind of screwing him. Like, that's one yeah. thing that Saturn Girl reads immediately. It's like, that guy's screwing you over. He's stealing your money. He's embezzling. Rock quits the manager, and I think he's, he's over it as far as being a sports star goes. And this is a new challenge, and you can... You, you can see why these three kids decided, yes, this is a good idea. It comes right at the perfect time for each of them. Yeah, absolutely. And it really comes together nicely, I think. The other thing that's changing in the continuity is that originally, the Legion was inspired by Superboy. And, uh, of course, there's no Superboy in this continuity or not the same kind of Superboy, let's say. Yeah. Uh, instead, they have R.J. Brand be the history buff. And go, well, this is just like the Justice League of old. We're inspired by the team of heroes from a thousand years back. And it comes from someone who is perhaps more likely to be in, you know, interested in history or know his history because he's an older man. And we don't know necessarily what his origin is. But I think a lot of people are picky about this. They like it to be Superboy because it used to be Superboy. And then when there's yeah, yeah. no Superboy, it's Superman. Well... It's a team, so why not it be a team? So where do you sit on this decision of theirs? Oh, oh, I'm fine with that. I mean, I think way back when in the in the Silver Age, I don't know 
when uh, they decided Superboy was the, uh, the well, the very first story in 1958 is the Legion visiting Superboy. Okay, the, the, so, I mean the original Legion stories were Superboy stories essentially, and I think Superboy was meant to be read by children. You know, it's like kid books. And uh, we don't do kid books anymore. I mean, kid books are, are very different from the rest of the superhero genre. So I was like, you know what? It kind of feels like the way the the Justice League decided to have like this round table, like the Knights of the Round Table, you know? And and they just keep on being this legacy of heroes like the Knights of Old and, and the superheroes of old. And, I, you know, I, I really did like that part. Yeah, DC kind of stuck with it because, but when they do like a DC One Million later, well, there's yeah. a Justice League. It's a Justice Legion in the 853rd century, you know. So yeah. the legacy seems to be also the Legion. So it's interesting to see that those two teams are kind of the gold standard when it comes to superhero teams in this universe. Oh yeah, well, why wouldn't they? I mean, uh, the Legion of Superheroes is is just incredible, and I mean. The Justice League. You, you can't beat the Justice League. So if you're going to be inspired by something, it has to be these teams. The other notes that I have on this issue are that if you're a Legion fan already, then you might have noted that Luornu is the assistant to RJ Brand, and that's obviously Triplicate Girl Yeah, in waiting. Uh, Siobhan Aaron is one of the science police, and she in the original continuity, Siobhan was uh, Element Lad's a lover. She was uh, working with the as a liaison with the science police and the Legion. She will mm -hmm. again play that role in this reboot reality, but not the lover of, but the the rest. And yeah. uh, there's a mention of Black Mace, who is a villain, an old villain from the uh, 60s, 70s. But Black Mace will not appear in this continuity until the very end, like 10 years later. You never see Black Mace. Oh, wow. Uh, so he's just supposed to be a little Easter egg. And speaking of Easter eggs, there's a... Um, throughout this era of the Legion, like the first five years or so, the, the artists like to put little cameos. So you might see like, I don't know, Mr. Spock in the background or they'll, oh, they'll cool. do like, yeah, like Picard's there. They'll do a lot of uh, science fiction Easter eggs. And in this case, if you look on page five in the plane with them, there is a xenomorph alien reading an iPad or something. So, so there's an alien from Alien in there as, oh, wow. as a joke. You know, like you've got like the head shape is unmistakable. Those are my notes on this uh, first issue. Anything else to add before we jump into Legionnaires? I, I didn't think I would enjoy this as much as I did. It really was, it really did pop for me. I, I really enjoyed it. So this is a great start for me for this series. All right, well, we'll see if the second chapter keeps you hooked um, and that one is um, Legionnaires number zero. It's by Mark Wade, Tom McCraw, Jeffrey Moy, and Ron Boyd. It's called Close Encounters. RJ Brand introduces the Legion project to the United Planets Council, and the kids quickly make a splash by saving it from a bomb threat. With the help of the Big Tazillion Senator's daughter, Apparition, and Brand's Cargite assistant, Triad, the now-dubbed Cosmic Boy, Saturn Girl, and Livewire manage to save lives and capture the terrorists. Invitations are sent to other superpowered kids across the UP, including the future Leviathan, Kid Quantum, Excess, Chameleon, Invisible Kid, and Brainiac 5. Again, let's look to the cover. So is this? Uh, did you like this cover better? <laughs> this cover kind of feels like, you know, a, a Three Wolves. I don't know what that means. Three Wolves. <laughs> 
you know, the three wolves posters where you have like a wolf and you have like a wolf face and a, and, and a wolf silhouette somewhere, you know, it, it has this kitschy. Are you, mean, do you mean like something like painted on velvet or something? Yeah. Yeah. Something like that. Okay. Cause it is, is it, there's a, like a star field and the characters are sort of almost melding into the star field. Yeah. But yeah, um, it, it gives you a shot of not only the three heroes from the previous issue, but Apparition, people might know as Phantom Girl in the original continuity, and Triad, yeah. who used to be Triplicate Girl in that continuity. I think it's more fun as a cover, but it it, it made me laugh because it looks like this, you know, kitschy graduation type picture, you know. Oh, sure. Where you have, you know, this bigger face that's kind of transparent and, you know, smaller, full. I mean, it would, I, I think it was fun. It makes sense to call it a graduation picture because these kids graduate to the big time, you know, for yeah. the first time. Uh, generally, the art, like here, Jeffrey Moy is still quite young and his art is going to get really, really crisp and clear and sharp uh, and fun very quickly. And I think maybe that's a question of inkers or I don't know. But uh, here, it's a, I find it a little rough in this particular book. But uh, you can see already why they called this era of the Legion the Archie Legion. Oh, yeah. Because most, most of the artists making them look very young. Like, you could imagine this Saturn girl as Betty and Apparition as maybe a Veronica. And you could actually imagine, like, oh, yeah. this kind of art on an Archie book. Garth looks like Archie. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Reggie for Rock. Reggie for Rock. And I don't know where Jughead is, but he's coming along somewhere. Chameleon, maybe? So, oh, yeah. Somebody like that. So, or Matter Eater Lad would have been great for uh, a Jughead, <laughs> except in this continuity, they never... Well, they, they never make him a member. He becomes, he's the cook for the team. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, it is funny. So he still gets like his moment to shine, but him and like Bouncing Boy, uh, who is like the engineer of the team, you know, they're not necessarily team players in the same way. They're the support crew. Okay. Uh, so they kept like the, what would be the silly characters kind of more in the background and yet still important and integral to the series. They're, you know, they're like Oberon and Elrond and, and JLI or something, you know, comedy relief yeah. and they get some of the action. So the, this book starts with that ad, RJ Brand's marketing machine. Uh, and, uh, and you can see that they don't have the uniforms yet. The uniforms that were designed were going to be all the same. And I think that's part of the unification idea. They're all going to be blue with the stripe in the middle, with the lighter blue in the middle. And they're all going to get that style with the two stripes on the side and the one stripe in the middle to balance yeah. it. But they're all going to you know, customize their outfits quite quickly. Yeah, they're going to make it their own. And I guess the question is whether like Livewire instead of Lightning Lad. And we're going to Apparition instead of Phantom Girl, Tried instead of Triple Good Girl. Some of them are going to keep their old names, but many are going to change names for something a little more 90s, I guess. Yeah. Well, I think anybody with the uh, the name Lad gets changed, right? Or Lass. Um, nobody says Lad or Lass. Yeah, nobody, well, whoever did. I mean, unless you're Irish or something, or Scottish or Laddie, yeah. you know, something like that. So, I, yeah, you're right that Lad and Lass are tough ones. Oh, yeah, they're gone. I'm trying to think, did anyone keep that kind of name? Because they even, like, they've got a Saturn girl, so I don't think... Like here, it would have been Triplicate Girl and Phantom Girl. So like three girls, like in the core five, the first five, three yeah. girls. It's kind of tough. I have a feeling that in the terms of story, you know, they say that Garth wanted to be called Lightning Lad. But yeah, yeah. But but the, the PR team. Yeah, it tested poorly. <laughs> yeah, it tested poorly. It was it, the PR team thought that, you know, 
Livewire would be better. Which is the name that he had, like, before the reboot, we had two Legion teams. We had, like, the older Legion team, the dark and gritty Legion team, and then we had their temporal clones, who were kind of looking like this. And so some of them had changed names. You know, that Lightning Lab was already Livewire. You know, in the reboot, they transitioned to exactly that name. Yeah, yeah. So it makes sense, uh, you know, on a, like here it seems, oh, when you're thinking of the old Legion, but there was already a live wire. The name fits. I mean, it's not like this ridiculous name. To, it's it's a good name for this superhero, I think. It's good enough that they gave it to a, a Superman villain in the animated series, which then became, you know, a villain in the comic book series, and then became, yeah. once again, a live, uh, live wire is, she was in the Supergirl show as well, right? As a... Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So Livewire is a name that seems to, to work. Good for them. I don't think all of the <laughs> new names are necessarily as good, but I like Triad. That's fine. I like Apparition yeah. is fine. And uh, and you don't want all the names to sound all the same. And I think that was part of the equation when they were redressing this. It's one thing to present a team that's already like 30 people and a proportion of them are girls or boys or lads or lasses. But yeah. then to start over and the characters you've chosen maybe you want some variety there, you know. Way back when, I could never remember Princess Projectra. Right. Because it was princess. She wasn't lass or girl. So I was always like, the the princess girl. So when she changed her name to Censor Girl, It screwed me up. Oh, it screwed you up. It was worse. Then I was like, what is Princess Censor? What is this? Here, you've got the three heroes doing their thing, but they're also going to have these two... They don't have to recruit them. They... They see a, a problem and they act on it, and, and so they, they win their spot on the yeah. team. Triad is credited with saving Brand and the president. When some rubble comes falling down, she splits into several and uh, and pushes everybody away. Nobody kind of mentions that Livewire, it's because Livewire started zapping stuff that the rubble came down. Yeah, because he made a hole in the in, in the, the roof. dome. Yeah, These Legionnaires are just as dangerous as they are helpful, but nobody says it. Not quite yet, but that's yeah. going to become actually part of the plot lines is that some people are opposed to this, putting kids in danger, that they may be more trouble than they're worth. So um, that's going to haunt them. Not this particular event, but it is going to haunt them, especially coming from the Senator Wazo, who is Phantom Girl's or Apparition's mother. And she's going to be very opposed to the Legion, probably because her daughter is hanging out with them. Ooh. Yes, yes. Well, family trouble. That's interesting. We see the CD part of Metropolis in this. I mean, there's a three-breasted woman from Total Recall. There's the eroticon yeah. uh, being advertised. Looks like stealth from the acronym Legion in, in the window there on, on that page. It's like, this. there's a sex town. You know, there's a red light district in this Metropolis. Oh, yeah. This isn't Superman's Metropolis. I mean, maybe it's Suicide Slum or something. I mean, the previous comic i didn't mention it but um livewire and cosmic boy are sort of yeah electromagnetism you know both of them have a similar power finally and 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 there's almost like a little bromance brewing there much more than yes garth notices imra because in the original continuity they were an item Uh, will they become again so that's a question that that hangs over this. But there is a big bromance between the two boys, and because she even says, "Okay, enough with the uh, the stroke fest." Oh my! Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so yes, we're in the '90s. 
things are a bit more relaxed. There are, there's going to be like sex stuff, I guess, even though these kids are probably 15, 16. Really? You think they're that, that young? I, I know they're, they're like, young. Oh, I was thinking, I was thinking more like uh, 17, 18, no. you know, just, just on the cusp of being adults. Well, in the original continuity in the Legion constitution, you could only join the Legion if you were under 18. Oh, okay. Oh. At all. And, and you look at the drawings and you can tell, okay, well, they were supposed to be Superboy's age and Superboy was between 14 and 16 during those stories. So they're around that age. I think there's dialogue at some point that mentions that like their 16 is our 18. Oh, okay. Kids are, yeah. I mean, they're obviously they come from different planets and I mean, age has been re, it's a little bit like here. We've got kids and I fully endorse this that, you know, advocate for getting the vote at 16. Oh Yeah. Oh, yeah, big time. Totally on board with that. Well, in the future, it seems that 16 is sort of the age of adulthood or of some adulthood. It makes uh, perfect sense. I think 16 is closer to reality than 18, really. I mean, uh, I have a nine-year-old and he's already a... A teenager. <laughs> a preteen. <laughs> I mean, he's already... <laughs> so, yeah, I think when he's 16, he's going to be pretty close to being, yeah. you know... And I mean, fully ripened. in an evolved future it, where if we look at this, we know that Rock Crin is a sports star at that age uh, and she's a cop at 16. Um, so it's a different reality. We have to understand that education is not the same. We have evolved as a society. We have evolved. Our brains have evolved. Our notions have evolved uh, and changed. Oh, yeah. And uh, and that was always true in the Legion books. It's a utopia. The kids were kids, but no parents, you know, <laughs> uh, around at all. So we understand that they can travel at 15, 16, they're independent. And so it's true here as well. Um, but uh, yeah, so, but still, the, the CD part of Metropolis is like, oh my God, this is a little adult for them, <laughs> isn't it? I think there w there's one mistake in the story for me. It's, and I think here it is true that the art is a little rough still. It's when Tina runs through the bomb. She runs through a sculpture in the middle of the UP thing. And she phases through it and she sees there's like wires and there's stuff that's not supposed to be there. Saturn girl picks up that thought and they go, that's a bomb. And then they get rid of the bomb. So that, yeah. that's the way that Tina helps originally. And then she follows them uh, after the terrorists and helps them capture the bad guys. Yeah, yeah. She shows her medal there. But the way that it's uh, presented in the art, you have to like flip back and go, huh? Because the way that she phases through the bomb is not clear. It's not clear that that's happening on page uh, six. I didn't really get it at first. I, it, it's only when I saw her again phasing through like the laser beams and, and battling the, the sniper that I, I thought, okay, this is Phantom Girl or whatever. Yeah, because the way that's presented on top of page six is that she goes, that was weird. Why does the globe have ellipses? And she is partly phased into the thing. But she's walking out yeah. of it. The picture's too small. You can't really tell. She could just be standing there looking back. And you think, what does she see? How does she see anything? Uh, if you don't know the character. Obviously, I know the character, yeah. but it's so I, I could make that leap. But the art doesn't quite show it. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to call foul on that aspect of it. But otherwise, some fun action. And then, and then they're sending invitations to all these other kids uh, sort of trying to get like a member from each world or something. Yeah. Some notes on that. From Xantu, we get not Starboy, which is the surprise. Not Starboy, but Kid Quantum. 
Yeah. He was a character that was sort of made an appearance in the previous volume. I don't know. He exists already. What's interesting, in, if we look at the future here, is that he's he dies pretty quick. Oh, yeah? yeah. He's an a-hole, and he's very arrogant, and so he dies. And he's eventually replaced by Kid Quantum 2, his sister. And she's like one of the best characters that they created for this book. Really? She becomes the team leader eventually and, and everything. So so it's sort of, we had to see, be, just because of the setup, the, you know, the United Planets are new. Maybe they don't get along. Everybody doesn't get along. They were picked yeah, yeah, yeah. by, I don't know how, you know, like each world picked a member. It's not, there weren't any tryouts or do we have chemistry? <laughs> no, we're just like thrown into a pot and some characters don't fit in. And then things happen. Well, now. Yes. We also get the first appearance of Excess. So you know her. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I know her. Of course. I I, I met her in in the Flash books. And I was quite excited to see her make an appearance in this comic book. That's her first. It's her very first. So she's introduced here. And uh, I mean, obviously, she doesn't have her costume yet. She's the daughter of one of the Tornado Twins. So the granddaughter Mm -hmm. of Barry Allen, the Flash. And she's going to be like the super speedster of the team, which is interesting because the Legion never had any super speedsters. I was going to say they never had a super speedster. So this is closer to the the Justice League. True. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. You can count Superboy and Supergirl and Mon-El and Ultra Boy. They have it. You know, obviously they have like that uh, Kryptonian adjacent. Oh, yeah. They're quick. But they're, they're not runners. They're not speedsters. No. So Excess is our speedster. And it kind of makes sense that she's introduced here. Mark Wade is co-writing this. He's writing The Flash. Big Connect time. the dots. I skipped over uh, Jim Allen, who is uh, going to be in our continuity. Originally was called Colossal Boy. Uh, mm-hmm. Here he is, Leviathan. And he's also a science police officer from Earth. Yeah. Obviously, he's going to like be able to grow giant size or whatever. So he's enrolled into the Legion, never quite quits the science police. He's serving two masters. And his fate is also kind of dark because he tries to be, in his mind, he's got to be the team leader because he's a science cop. Because of the training and everything. Right. So that's he's going to go down the dark path and he's not going to last very long either, which is a surprise. It's like when they kill off like one of the originals, you're kind of more shocked. Kid Quantum, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, he's, he's, you know, he was made to be killed, but... Yeah, he's an a-hole. Yeah, but Jim Allen, you're thinking, well, you know, he's one of the originals, so he's got to be in the team for good and forever. Um, not the case, so he's he's not going to he's not gonna last. We also get, who else is there after? Chameleon. Chameleon. Yeah, we get a scene with the Durlins. We don't understand anything because it's all in alien script. Well, it's Durling, Durlin speak. We've seen it in... I mean, we read Invasions. So <laughs> yeah. We saw it. So uh, this is going to be an interesting character because he's going to be like um, really a fish out of water. He's not going to be speaking Interlac very well. Hmm. And he's going to keep that shtick up way longer than he needs to. So he's going to fake not understanding the nuances of the language. And he's going to fake speaking with an accent and without the, the the right vocabulary for a little long. Such a Durlin. He's going to be like, he's a great spy. So, you know, he's he knows how to integrate himself and seem completely harmless when he's probably one of the most powerful kids there, you know. So he's yeah. uh, he's in the team. And then they have Gigi Kumuzimano, who was a science cop in the original continuity. Gigi 
unfortunately does not appear a lot in the Legion reboot. To me, as she was one of my favorite science cops because when I started reading, she was important to the series. Here she's just delivering a message to Invisible Kid. So Invisible Kid, the original Invisible Kid, Lyle Norg, you know, like he's also independent. He's rich. He's making uh, he's <laughs> making stuff, uh, inventing stuff, and so he's independently rich in this. And she brings uh, a note to him. So Invisible Kid is going to be part of that original team, and uh, and then Brainiac Five. Uh, we got Ron Vidar in the background there. There at the Time Institute, and Brainiac Five takes the invitation, puts it on a pile. <laughs> Doesn't read it, <laughs> just puts it on the pile. So it's going to take a, a like a couple issues for him to join, just because he couldn't be bothered. Yeah, and uh, I mean. He's so busy. <laughs> and he looks older. There's something with the Brainiacs. They just look older. Except for that baby one. But, yeah. <laughs> you know. They're older, but not wiser. They have a lot of intelligence, but not a lot of wisdom sometimes. Brainiac 5, the baby one, that's his grandfather? No, there's a discontinuity. I think Brainiac 5 is born of Brainiac 4, who's a female Brainiac. But in oh. between Brainiac 3... Vrildox's little boy and Brainiac 4, there's like nothing. They're not like a direct descendant. I think they're maybe cloned from cells or something. Okay. In 900 years, we clone the cells of a Brainiac and we get Brainiac 4. And she's a villain and she gives birth to Brainiac 5. It's basically a legacy name or there's a legacy there, but it's not. It's kind of genetic, but I don't think it's. It's not direct. It's not like normally he'd be Brainiac 500 or, you know, how many generations yeah, have yeah. gone past. Ah, so that's cool. Yeah. That's cool. So it's they're not directly influenced by the name. They can be whatever they want, basically. Yeah. Although they're always going to be Kaluans and super smart and, and kind of arrogant. And that's part of the family line. So I, I thought this was pretty hilarious, the way he treats yeah. the invitation. And that's sign of things to come. He's always going to have a difficult relationship with the team because of his arrogance, because he can't be bothered, because he wants to work on his inventions and such, and superheroing is not even secondary, you know, basically. So that's like the building blocks of the team. We don't see them in costume yet. You know, if you're a new reader, you may not know who they're going to be. You may not know that's Invisible Kid. You may not know this is Colossal Boy. You know, it's not clear what their powers might be in each case. So um, that's all to be discovered. Both series would continue for five years in this format. Mm. They reinvented Legion members, villains, storylines, and then things go dark under a new creative team uh, with books like Legion Lost, Legion Worlds, and then The Legion. But it's a good 10-year stretch with half of it, two titles on the go, and a relatively frequent tie-in miniseries and specials and they sent part of the team to the 20th century where they can take part in crossovers and meet heroes from our era. So this was a very popular era for the Legion, all, all things considered. Wow. Wow. That's awesome. Given this, let me ask you, would you read these books based on their zero issues? After this, would you have continued to read LSH and Legionnaires? Actually, most definitely. I really enjoyed these two books. I, I, I'm probably going to look for them trades of these books uh, in the near future. Yeah. Obviously, I was continuing my Legion trek at the time, but to me, this was a very exciting series. It it wasn't always so great revisiting it. Sometimes I I could see, you know, when you're blogging about something or I could see the flaws more readily or like sometimes they would introduce storylines and then there was a change of creative team and and they never resolved. Like they, they set up too much subplot 
and then never resolved them. That happened over time. You know, when you're looking at six, seven, eight years in, some of the things were sort of abandoned, which is always a problem with the Legion because there's so many members. But to me, this was a lot like the feeling I got that, you know, originally was the same that I got for the post-crisis reboot of Superman. And, and, you know, Hmm. and other characters. Whenever something came out after Crisis that was obviously post-Crisis, not a continuation, but a reinvention, I was always very excited to see how they would redo the things that I already knew, how they would reinterpret them for a more modern 80s era. That excited me in a way that other reboots in in the future did not. You know, it's it's like the way it was done in post-Crisis and then... With this Legion stuff, I thought was the right way to do it. It felt a lot like yeah. the reinventions when you're watching, you know, the Batman, Superman, Legion, yeah, those yeah, cartoons. Yeah. The cartoons are really nice reinventions of the concepts, you know, clarifications of the concepts. Yeah. I felt like this for this Legion stuff. It, it does feel like that. It feels like something that's starting in a right way. And I can see it going on for 10 years. I mean... It has to be good if it goes on for 10 years. I don't think the, what was their name again? The Guardians of the Globe or... The New Guardians? The New Guardians. Oh, I hated that. Yeah, no, but they're all new characters. Here, it's a reinvention. There's just enough of the original and then also just enough reinvention to make it exciting and new. So I was all in and I think these are two very strong Zero issues. Oh, yeah. Big time. We'll take a small break. When we come back, we'll talk about Rebels and Lobo. See if they can do as well. Welcome to the world of tomorrow. (laughs) The Legion of Superheroes through the Silver Age, the Bronze Age, the Baxter series. Five years later, the reboot, the three-boot, the retro-boot, the animated series. We have banded together as the Legion of Super Bloggers to cover it all. Seek us out at legionofsuperbloggers.blogspot.com. Why do you always have to say it that way? Haven't you ever heard of a little thing called showmanship? We're back. Back uh, to the 20th century, really. So uh, last we saw the acronym Legion, Vril Dox's baby, Lurl had taken over the interstellar police force and our heroes, or at least those not brainwashed by Brainiac 3, were marked for death. They grabbed a ship and escaped Cairn. The book changes its name to acronym Rebels and restarts the numbering. So it's sort of a new book, but not really. All right. All right. It's it's the continuing saga. Yes. It's still, you know, apostrophe 94. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so Rebels 94, number zero. It's by Tennessee Pyre, Tom Pyre, uh, Arnie Jorgensen, and James Pascoe. It's called Less Than Zero. The Rebels raid a Legion ship for supplies, and Strata is shocked that when push comes to shove, Vrildox is willing to destroy the ship and all aboard to escape. Back on Cairn, Lurl Dox summons the Legion historian to tell him where to nip and tuck Legion history. Revolted by the propaganda, the historian goes postal and dies in a hail of blaster fire, but not before smuggling his journal aboard a long-distance probe. Meanwhile, the rebel's ship finds itself surrounded by hundreds of Legion ships. And that's our story in a nutshell. Again, I point to the cover. Oh yes, the cover is action-packed. I mean... It feels, you know, back to the wall and, and they're, they have guns blazing and, you know, it's very 90s. Very, very 90s. It's, it's one of those covers with the spotlights on the heroes. 
Oh, yeah, yeah, that's yeah, true. Just like, I mean, I guess that's a, I think the X-Men did it first. I want to say the X-Men. Anyway, it may be a riff on on those, uh, you know, Days of Future Past. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Kind of things. And we saw a similar image in the Deathstroke as well. You know, it's like the character being fired upon. Yeah. Yeah. Probably a trope now. You oh, know, yeah. uh, we've seen it on Batman. We've seen it on Superman. We've seen it everywhere. Yes. Yes, for sure. I mean, there are two stories here. There's the continuing story of uh, what's happening with the Rebels. Rebels <laughs> as an acronym. I think it was always sort of a joke, I guess. I don't know. But eventually we find out it stands for Revolutionary Elite Brigade to Eradicate Legion Supremacy. In other words, oh. there's a, an acronym inside the acronym because the L stands for Legion, which stands for legal blah, blah. So um, I'm not sure how serious that is. But, you know, the series is going to be called that. Fine. But there are two stories. So th let's talk about them separately. The first one is just seeing uh, where some months later, it looks like, at least weeks later, and the Legion is on the run aboard that, that weird kind of scaraby ship. What did you think of this section of it? It is a weird ship. I didn't even understand it was a ship at first. I was like, what is that, a finger? Like a, a giant... Like a, a crab claw or a crab leg? Yeah, yeah. I was like, what the hell is that? So, yeah, first part of the story is uh, they seem very desperate. And we have this this one Lobo who's just goofing off. So uh, you kind of feel the, the desperation of this group in this first half of the story. And, I mean, you, you, you kind of feel them like they're on the run. And I kind of enjoyed that. I was like, well, yeah, yeah, all right. We got rebels. They're on the run. They need to steal supplies. And, you know, they're going to do what rebels have to do once in a while, and that's destroy a ship to get away. So, but they do have like this moral uh, paradox where, you know, they're, they're heroes and they're good guys, but they'll destroy a ship to get away. So, yeah, well, and we know Vril Dox is a right bastard. And, uh, you know, like he's, oh, yeah, he's, he's grabbing does. telepath by the neck in this because he's still uh, hypnotized by the other docs. The conflict is really, and you're wondering, how long will Strata stay with the team? Because she's the one that goes, we can't, you know, like these guys are hypnotized. It's not their fault, or they're being ruled by somebody evil who has misled them into trying to capture us. It's not their fault. It's like, it's them or us. And she says, well, maybe it ought to be us. So I love her yeah. her morality in that moment. But then as soon as like stealth or somebody is gets uh, attacked... And it ought to be us, but uh, if it's going to be one of my friends, then I'm not going to take that either. So she's really caught. And she just, yeah. as we saw in the tie-in, she just got married with Garve, who has remained on Cairn. So she's split up from her new husband in this scheme. So that's going to be part of her storyline going forward, is resolving that. She's in a team that's that's you know playing by some rules that she doesn't like, and she's separated from her beloved because of this situation. So it's going to be really tough for her. And I think she's really the yeah. heart of this team. She's the one you care for. Absolutely. And and she's the real hero here. You know, she has this, this hero mentality. She's trying to do the right thing, but I mean, she's in this situation. She can't always do the right thing. Yeah. And, and you've got Lobo who's always doing the wrong thing. Never mind food and, and whatever, munitions or whatever. He's going for video games and then he realizes they don't even have a console aboard the ship so yeah. he's playing like he's sort of a jli character in this in a way he's, he's a guy gardener yeah. kind of 
very much so. He he is the guy gardener of this team right now. He's in contrast of the other characters. He's not very likable. He he's very counterproductive. I mean, we know that Vril is going to be uh, Dox is going to be a, an ass. I mean, he's that's what he is. But you you could be thinking, well, maybe Lobo could help out a little bit. But he's counterproductive. Yes, and I think he's maybe just there because Lobo is a big seller. Because if you want to <laughs> yeah, sell the probably. book, put Lobo in it. I don't even know what he's doing there when he has his own book, and we'll talk about later, and his own life. So why is he, how is he slumming around with the rebels? When when does this take place compared to other stories? It's kind of problematic for me, especially if he's not going to do anything. Maybe he gets better, and maybe he quits the team. He's just there for the launch and to get people aboard the, the book or something. But by yeah. the end of this issue, we when we get back to this story, that ship is surrounded by, I don't know, thousands of ships? <laughs> I'm not sure how how big, I mean, that mass of ships is, is a, a lot. lot. So that's a, a cool cliffhanger. And we'll come back to it to see if if that would have gotten you aboard. In the, in the meantime, there is this other story. Most, most of the comic is actually this other story, which serves as a device for the zero issue to catch you up. If this is your first issue, what happened to get us to this point is basically the point. But they do yeah. it with this historian who is... Devoted to the truth, but he's being told to rewrite history. You know, so we're told the correct history, but then Lurl Docs goes, well, no, you know, you're going to rewrite it and I'm going to be the hero of the story in that one. And you're going to downplay these people and you're going to avoid this topic. And it felt very contemporary, I got to say. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, really. I was like, I, I was seriously thinking, oh, my God, they are controlling narratives. You know, nobody's looking for the truth. They're all controlling narratives. And this archive guy, I mean, he goes he goes nuts because of this, as one should. Not only are they like propaganda machine kind of stuff, but the, the Legion has become a fascist police. So there's that element. And we're sort of justifying the fascism and the strong arm yeah. tactics. And the way that Lurl Docks, which is an infant, the baby with the big blonde hair, Paint him orange <laughs> instead of green. Oh, yeah. And I mean, this is prophetic. It is. I mean, he's much smarter, really... obviously. But, you know, it's the same kind of imagery. It's sort of predicted oh, for the last yeah. four years. So <laughs> it is weird. Is it weird, though? Is it weird? I mean, it's weird how closely, you know, the yellow hair and everything and the, the, the attitude is. That part is really prophetic, you know. It's uncanny. But. These types of people, I mean, they pop up all sure, the Sure, for the writers in 90, 1994, they yeah. were looking back. And I'm also looking back, but I don't have to look back as far, is the thing. Uh, there just happens to yeah. be uh, connections where this is a lot more topical today than it was in 1994. Actually, I, yeah. I would say. Uh, having lived through those years, also, maybe I was not as, I don't know, woke or informed. I don't know. But that said... I don't think they do this a lot in the series as such, but I like the historian story because it's showing other rebels. You know, it's like there's yeah. the rebels, acronym rebels, and then on Cairn, where this is happening, there is this one rebel, this unlikely rebel, a historian who is, you know, drawing the line, making a yeah. move, uh, hoping that the truth will get out there through his journal Um, so I I don't know if the series did this a lot. I kind of want to go in and check. 
were there like these little stories peppered throughout about other rebels? Like to use that title to mean, no, the whole galaxy has a resistance movement building against Laurel Docks, you know? I do hope so, because a lot of times we always see the people who who fight and the people who are in, in the front lines. But, I mean, historians and, and people with books and, and people who write and archivists and, and, and all these people, I mean, some of them historically have been a major part of any rebellion. You don't just rebel because you feel like it. It's it's rebellion against something that's trying to lie to you or or control you. And and the people who know and the people who with the knowledge are often the, the people with the most influence in the rebellion. You get a lot of thinkers, you know, behind all this stuff. This version of the series lasts 17 more issues before coming to an end. When they decided to bring back the characters in 2009, uh, the series was also called Rebels, and Drill Docs again lost control of Legion. <laughs> and that lasted, actually lasted another 28 issues. So the Rebels okay. had a little revival, but obviously it's the Legion characters. And yes, it's Laurel Docs taking over Legion again. Uh, it's like history repeats itself. Uh, so so here's my question then, based on this. I think the Legion issue that, that was the tie-in was maybe a little more what's happening here. But, you know, this gives you a sort of uh, an introduction to it uh, at the same time that it's telling its story. Would you have continued to read this based on the issue? Yeah, actually, I, I would. I really dug the world building in this uh, in this first issue, in this zero issue, I'm, uh, I should say. The world building is very interesting. Uh, how Legion became, you know, this dictatorship and a uh, fascist movement. And and it, it's it's fascinating. So uh, Lobo put aside, because he, he kind of bugs me in this. I would probably pick up at least Rebels number one and two and, and see where it goes. Okay, well, cool. I know I continued to read it, you know, to the end because I was already reading Legion. So I was pre-sold. But I think looking at this issue just objectively, yes. I, I think, you know, it ends on a big cliffhanger. It, it was well done. It caught me up. And I think generally I like the antagonism between Laurel Docs and Vril Docs and, you know, how how the, the son, who is just an infant, has become the villain. is funny unto itself. But I think, you know, I think there's enough in here in this uh, first comic to make me buy Rebels number one, which would have been next. Oh, yeah. So let's look at Lobo. We saw him in this issue, as you said, but he also held his own title at this point, which was on issue number nine. It might have been a lot okay. of fun to see Lobo in time travel shenanigans, but he did not get a zero-hour tie-in, probably because issue nine was part three of a story arc, and they didn't want to move that around. This series would last 65 issues in all, plus annuals, but unlike all the Lobo miniseries and specials that had preceded it, it was not mature readers only. And it was less a parody of ultraviolet 90s comics than it was an irreverent anti-hero comic set pretty firmly in the DC universe. I personally, I only picked up an issue here and there, even though I was pretty loyal to the miniseries and specials. So you see where my Lobo tastes stand. Uh, yeah, I liked yeah. it when it was overt parody and it was gory and insane. When it became this series, meh. What about you? Were you a, like a Lobo 
fan or did you read any Lobo comics at all? I did read a couple miniseries um, from your collection, actually. I did enjoy the over-the-top parody of Wolverine and the Punisher and because that's what Lobo was. You know, he was this ultimate bad boy, anti-hero, so much so that he's legendary. It's just too much, and I did enjoy it when he was just over-the-top parody. I must say, I did enjoy this comic okay. book, Okay, well, let's let's get yeah. into it then. Uh, Lobo number 0 by Alan Grant, Val Simics, and John Dell. It's called Reservoir Mooks. Uh, criminals are quaking in their shorts because they've crossed Lobo, and they know he's coming for them. One of them knows all about Lobo and tells stories that may or may not be legends, rumors, or the truth from Lobo's violent birth to his getting implanted with a heavy metal music player in his brain, to killing his entire people, to assassinating Santa Claus, and fighting Superman, to his adventures in Acronym Legion. After we see how the guys met Lobo, he shows up, and yes, he kills them. So um, (laughs) let's look at that cover. It's uh, Lobo, there's uh, Kirby Crackle behind him, he's firing some sort of gun, he's got this hook in his other hand, and he's stepping on skulls and breaking them. And he has this big cigar. It's kind of leaping out of his mouth. Oh, this is a great cover. He's shooting at us. It's one of those magnificent pinup poses where you see Lobo in all his glory. He's gray and, and pale and red eyes. And, you know, he has a skull on his on his knee. It's beautiful. It's heavy metal to the max. Yes. And that's one of the things in this. You know, Alan Grant gave us this basic setup in Shadow of the Bat, you know, that we covered on in an yeah. early episode where the the bad guy, the criminals are sort of, uh, they know Batman's coming and they're, they're, they fear him and they're discussing what Batman might be like. It's kind of like this. Um, yeah. I think it may be more successful, however. Oh, yeah, because it's this one character who looks a lot like Worf. From Star Trek. He's Worf meets a Predator. <laughs> yeah, yeah, big time. And I mean, he's read or somebody had the book, an unauthorized biography of Lobo. And this is in the book. So he's basically just telling us what's in this unauthorized biography. Right. It's wonderful. And I don't know if they meant for some of it not to be true. Uh, But we can explore each of these things, I guess. Well, one of the things that I didn't know and I think was maybe new to this is the heavy metal implant. That he hears heavy metal music at all times. (laughs) I don't think that was established before. No, I don't think so. I don't think so. I don't know if he had a mustache since birth either. No, that, yes. That, uh, I'm pretty sure. (laughs) I mean, he's so badass. He has this mustache. From I birth. think they are not necessarily. It's not necessarily hair. I think maybe they're like they have like the like around his eyes as well. I think they have kiss like makeup uh, from okay. birth. Okay, <laughs> maybe tries to kill the doctors and all of this stuff. That may be just legend, but it's Lobo that I can believe. There's a lot of heavy metal in this because he kills people by playing the guitar in one scene. You know, at a Battle of the Bands right. festival. He killed the other bands just by playing so loud. I mean, it's crazy. Yeah, and I like that stuff. And it kind of fits with the Superman animated series appearances where every time you see him, there's there's like this generic electric guitar. I didn't really enjoy how he killed everybody from his planet. I hated that because I knew. I mean, that was part of the legend from the beginning, that he had killed his entire species. 
He was the last Zarnian. Yeah. But that's because he killed everyone else. The, the fact that he does it with a virus, some sort of parasite, whatever it is, doesn't sound like Lobo. No, it's kind of, I don't know. I really just didn't enjoy it. I, I didn't think it was his style. It's not Lobo-esque. And I don't think this was ever told. We knew he'd killed his, his entire people. I don't think we ever knew the circumstances. So if this is the reveal of that, oh yeah, I want to say this is the part of the book that is not true. Yeah, I don't really like that. I, I, I mean, I would have preferred that he, yeah, I don't know, put very, very large speakers in the center of that planet and just played metal till the planet just ripped apart or something. You know, bugs or a virus or something like that. Mm-hmm. It's, yeah, why is, why is Lobo working in a lab and how, yeah. how is this fun for him? Like I would say exactly. he would kill all his people, but it has to be fun for him. Yeah, it has to be crazy. It has to be over the top. And this is actually like biological weapons. Well, nah. No, no. It's not his style. No, I don't believe it either. And generally, I think, you know, by making this not mature readers only, and maybe that's part of Alan Grant's style, I guess, sort of humor. Um, because here he's teamed up with the also the artist he was working with on The Demon. So that has the same kind of humor, but I feel because of the outer space stuff and whatever, the anti-hero stuff, it's more like his Judge Dredd work. So it feels a little bit like Judge Dredd yeah, in a yeah. way. And the jokes are like, you know, somebody has a hammer with MC written on it. Oh, MC Hammer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know. Uh, I, I, it made me smile, but not for the good reason. It's, it's not particularly... Clever, you know, and you've got Al's Diner, which is out out of Happy Days, uh, but this was actually a real setting, you know, like you go back to that restaurant, uh, that diner, and those characters, Al and and his wife, are regulars on the series. It's like this okay. this was the real hangout that Lobo. But this is the kind of series where you think, well, every time there's a new story, there's no real continuity, you know, it's just Lobo screwing around. I do like that they, you know, they name drop the. The issue where he uh, fights and kills Santa Claus. I love that too. Yeah, the paramilitary Christmas special, which is part of those mature readers books, where he gets hired by the Easter Bunny to kill Santa. So, <laughs> and here probably you're re- reading this, and if you don't know, you're thinking, well, this is part of the legends. This is the parts that are not true, you know. Except we did see them happen. So, <laughs> <laughs> so like that, and you know, it's all kind of a joke and goofy because whenever there's gore, there are stars. You know, every time they hurt someone really badly, there are like these, you know, comic book stars to show pain. And you wouldn't see that if it wasn't a goof. So I understand that it's supposed to be kind of lighthearted in its violence, but to me, it doesn't go far enough. Yeah, yeah. They probably have restrictions. No, exactly. They they do. So I'm not sure that Lobo works as well in the, the, the standard mainstream superhero universe where he's not allowed to go ultra violent. If he can only go violent... <laughs> if he can only go violent, he's only Lobo light. I mean, he's not being true Lobo. So well, that's my way to say I was not reading Lobo at this time. This is the first time I read this issue. I would not, based on this, keep reading Lobo. No, I think it was fun. I probably would have bought issue number one. Number 10, I guess. But uh, I would probably go check out when he killed Santa and then read the miniseries pretty much like I did. If it asks you to go back and read some of those, yes. You want me to continue with this? I'm not sure I see the point. This feels like, uh, you know, poor man's Lobo. Poor man's Lobo. Well, uh, we'll take a short break when we return your feedback on our previous episode. 
Justice League International Bwahaha Podcast, a new monthly show chronicling the adventures of the JLI era by Keith Giffen and J.M. DeMatteis. We'll be going issue by issue in release order, tackling the core Justice League title, Justice League Europe, and the quarterly book. Along the way, we'll take time out for special episodes covering various spin-offs, cartoon appearances, the infamous TV pilot, and much more. So join me in an ever-changing roster of guest hosts as we celebrate your favorite JLI members, such as... Martian Manhunter Batman Doctor Fate Black Canary Fire Ice Maxwell Lord Oberon Captain Marvel Rocket Red Captain Atom Mr. Miracle Guy Gardner Booster Gold Blue Beetle Nort And many, many more. Justice League International Blahaha Podcast Part of the Fire and Water Podcast Network Want to make something of it? Letters lost in time! Letters lost in time! Excerpts from your comments on our coverage of Titan-related Zero Issues, Deathstroke, Flash, and New Titans. Sir Ryan Daly's Real Talk. Uh, he says, <laughs> Deathstroke sucks. No matter how you slice it, he's a hard-edged mercenary warrior expert in all types of guns and weapons and allegedly tactically br- brilliant and... He chose to be the archenemy of a group of kids and then perpetually failed to kill them. Also, yeah, rapist. And also, his look is dumb. It's no secret that George Perez was pretty bad at designing costumes, though some people are in denial about this. Deathstrokes isn't his worst, but it's still pretty bad, and it's a worse version of the lackluster Taskmaster design, which survives thanks to the skull mask, mostly. Deathstroke doesn't even have that, just a dumber mask. Everything people claim to like about Deathstroke is the most obvious, tedious, superficial junk that it's no surprise at all that he was going to be the primary antagonist of for Batman if Zack Snyder had remained the creative director of the DC movieverse. Deathstroke sucks. And I have to add, even though I'm no fan of either Deadpool or Rob Liefeld, that Deadpool is better than Deathstroke in every possible way. Yes, he's a ripoff, but he's a vastly improved ripoff. His costume design is better. The red and black pops more than that navy blue scales and orange pirate boots. Deadpool's mask is much better with the black poke dots uh, over his eyes compared to Deathstroke's weird asymmetrical eyeless on the one side's two-faced thingy. Credit Liefeld for those improvements. Then later writers like Joe Kelly and Gail Simone for giving Deadpool a unique personality that vaulted him onto the big screen several times. Even the name Wade Wilson is better than Slade Wilson. I know that's a minor thing, but it's true. I have never heaped this much praise on Deadpool before, and I'm sure I never will again. But then I've never had to compare him to Deathstroke, who sucks. (laughs) Thank you, Ryan. Oh, Oh, yeah, that was fun. Mm, Flash number zero is where Michael Bailey started reading the series, but he disagrees. With you, that Wally's costume just changed from a Flash clone to the yellow and red for no reason. It was presented, he says, as a big deal in Flash number 135, we're not that old, man, where in true Silver Age fashion, Barry was messing with a machine that apparently gave him mind over matter powers, which allowed him to change Wally's costume, which he had been thinking about redesigning. Yes, it's silly, but then again, most of the Flash stories from that era are silly. And it also doesn't work with the story that we read, because... If Barry designed the yellow costume, then what's the point of having Wally give himself the yellow costume design, correct? Yeah, yeah. Uh, David Gutierrez and I had some back and forth in the comments section about what a Titans comic should be about. 
uh, it goes on a bit. So if you're interested, check out the comments section for that episode at fireandwaterpodcast.com. Captain Entropy mentions that in 94, the terrorist subplot was probably a reference to the 1993 World Trade Center bombing, Al-Qaeda's first attempt, which killed seven people. And he recommends the Batman plus Arsenal one-shot from this era as a better take on the character of of Arsenal, not Batman, obviously. Uh, It was character-driven and a good adventure. All right. Diablo Frank goes deep into Deathstroke's history says he started reading the book in his second year and liked it for a while, but he does mention the character's essential story problem. Punisher at least had missions. Deathstroke is a mercenary going on missions for money. Why? He's already rich enough to have a mansion, an army buddy slash manservant, and the kids are grown up. Uh, but also dead, uh, is it down to <laughs> alimony? Because I'm not saying that Adeline Kane is a gold digger. I'm just saying she took half his eyeballs with her. Yes, Deadpool ripped him off, but at the end of the day, the Terminator is just Mirror Universe Captain America. All the red is flattened to orange. Keep the blue chain mail and the origin, but the actual greed is good U.S. mentality instead of a patriotic fantasy. Without an ideology or mortal enemies or super teams to beat up on, what do you do with Captain of Fortune? Uh, The series felt like a throwback to pulpy men's adventure novel series, but they wouldn't be caught dead reading this corny costume clown in undersexed, bloodless, bland episodes. But he did start off saying that he read the book for a while. Must have liked it. He did do alliterations at the end. So that's, it has to say something nice there. For Ange... The Flash is one of those characters who I had jumped on and off for a while, he says. I had collected the first two years or so of the title, but jumped off. I'd heard good stuff about Wade Wieringo, but never picked up the book until Flash number zero. Once I read that, I knew I was missing something, so I bought it moving forward and grabbed as many back issues as I could uh, from then. Great issue, great message, great jumping on point. So it works for some people. Yeah. Tom Panarese has a lot of information on why New Titans had gotten this bad. Uh, while Marv Wolfman is not entirely blameless, after all, he decided to remain on the book despite the circumstances, much of the blame here goes to DC Editorial and specifically new editor Pat Garrahy. Garrahy was new to editorial and had been brought in onto the book at the end of another downturn in quality, and I imagine sales. Wolfman was, as one of you guys guessed, given the team lineup, a number of which were either new characters or characters he didn't exactly care for. In interviews, Wolfman is very bitter about this era, saying he can't even remember writing Impulse and that he didn't really care for a number of others, including Terra 2, a character who was much less of a lovesick puppy in the Jensen Jimenez uh, Team Titans and had actual character development in the direction of being the team's more intellectual core. Uh, Your mileage may vary on how much this worked. What made matters worse here is that Garrahy was dictatorial as editor, giving Wolfman whole plots and then changing dialogue after the issue had been scripted. This book lasted 15 more issues before being cancelled in early 1996. The last few issues flirt with decency as DC kicked Gary off the book at Wolfman's request and allowed Wolfman to finish things out with some semblance of a return to status quo before Dan Jurgens' Teen Titans would be launched. Even then, the stories of that final year or so of New Titans are among the lowest points of any Teen Titans I've read. Tom, by the way, also had a, a letter printed in that issue. So we didn't go wow. to the letters page, but Tom Panarese is in there. Yeah, from what I, and then other people chimed in and whatever, from what I gather, at this point, Marv Wolfman was just basically being given plots by editors and just writing the scenes and the, the dialogue. 
I would say it's hard to blame him for the the low quality, but at the same time, yeah, where, where's your pride? <laughs> in a way, yeah. you know, it's like, how did you get to, in that situation where this is the kind of work for hire you're doing? It's pretty sad. Maybe that's how you know Deathstroke stayed in there. You know, why why did he do it for money? Was it for money? Probably. Gus Casal says regarding the Wolfman verse, I took a comics hiatus from the late 70s until after the crisis. So I missed the big titans hoopla, but I did get the impression the they function in a separate reality from all the other titles I was reading. Even characters from that universe, like Wally, would only tangentially relate to that. And I also got no notion of Deathstroke or Vigilante at that although both were sold as hot properties. They always felt like they wanted to, to spoon-feed how cool they were. If you have to tell me how cool you are, maybe you aren't. This made <laughs> me very prejudiced towards the characters and titles, but I bought Deathstroke number zero anyway. And boy, were my prejudices confirmed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that's what happens. Chris Franklin mentions that Mark Wade considered his flash run semi-autobiographical and that he wrote Wally as himself. In particular that Wally's interaction with his younger self was based on a trip he took back to his hometown shortly before this. He stood outside his old house and wished he could go back to tell 10-year-old Mark that one day all his dreams would come true and he'd be writing his favorite comics like The Flash. And on that note, we have to mention that the Fire & Water Podcast Network has a Patreon page, so if you like our content, please think about making a one-time or monthly donation, the amount of which will allow you to unlock rewards, get on the zero list at patreon.com slash fwpodcast. Just like these fine folks, they got on the zero list. That means they're going to escape the cataclysmic time wave that's coming from both ends of history. Jim Ball has been saved from being devoured by blue scarabs in ancient Egypt. David Capoon has been saved from a boring physics class at Ivy University. Michael <laughs> Bailey has been saved from a pseudo-people factory as he was about to be disassembled. And Diablo Frank has been saved from Earth Kingdom Come as he was about to be replaced by the younger, hipper, anti-hero Frank. A reminder that you can leave comments <laughs> at fireandwaterpodcast.com. You can also follow Fire and Water's Facebook page or on Twitter. The account is FW Podcast. You can also listen to the show on Spotify. And just you wait what exciting comics we're going to cover next month. Next time on Zero Hour Strikes, Damage, Gunfire, Anima, and Xenobrew.